6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 6 through 8. We are in the book of Jeremiah, and you'll hear references to the weeping prophet. That's not because of the long history lessons. That's what he really was called. Jeremiah, as, uh, as I've mentioned, is perhaps one of the misunderstood and underread books. In the, it's one of the longest books of the Bible, also one of the most fundamental. There's much here we're going to glean as we get into it more and more. And yet, at the same time, interestingly enough, it's perhaps underread and under understood. And so um, uh, we are attempting to know the man, this man who has been called by some the g spiritual giant of the Old Testament, which is quite a statement when you look at the cast of characters in the Old Testament. He is quite a guy. And uh, uh, we are in the beginning of chapter 6. From time to time, we'll pause and sort of put it in historical perspective and what have you. But since I sort of beat you up on that subject uh, a meeting or two ago, I figure we'll just move on a little bit and and, and make uh, and, and hit things as we go. Chapter 6, we finished chapter 5 last time, I believe, rather hurriedly, but um, there's plenty more to go. Much of what we're going to read is uh, somewhat of a similar vein, and so uh, uh, we'll just keep moving. Uh, chapter 6 is the chapter of alarms, and it can be divided into five sections and all of that, but I don't think we'll you know get into all of that. Chapter 6, verse 1, O ye children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee out of the midst of Jerusalem, and blow the trumpet to Tekoa, and set up a sign of fire in Beth HaKarim, for evil appeareth out of the north, and a great destruction. Well, Benjamin, you know, is uh, uh, the tribe that lies between Judah and Ephraim. The city of Jerusalem although we associate it obviously with Judah as a royal city, is actually on the border and technically is in the tribe of ben it's turf of Benjamin, if you will. And Benjamin is obviously associated with Judah. It was also to the north of Benjamin was Ephraim, which of course is a, was not only one of the tribes of the house of, of the northern kingdom, but was also uh, becomes uh, idiomatic for the whole northern kingdom from time to time. When they speak of Ephraim in the connotative sense, they usually mean the northern kingdom. Anyway, so much for Benjamin. Benjamin is... Uh, the source of many interesting things, not the least of which was Saul and all the two Sauls, right? Saul of the Old Testament and Saul of the New Testament, later known as Paul. Enough of that. And to gather yourself out of the midst of Jerusalem and blow the trumpet in Tekoa. Now, Tekoa is about 12 miles, miles south of Jerusalem. Is obviously the hometown of a guy by the name of Amos. Now, there's also a pun here. There's all through Jeremiah, uh, I have access to some commentaries that deal with this, and I won't, I'll try not to over-prepare and bore you to death. But from time to time, uh, there are interesting plays of word. The word tekoa and the word tekoa in the Hebrew means uh, sound, like from a trumpet. And so in the actual Hebrew, this whole thing has a certain uh, euphony, uh, 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 
a sonal type appeal as well as a conceptual type appeal. In Hebrew poetry, there usually is the juxtaposition of ideas, not meter. We in the English poetry think of both meter and rhyme and such things that we treat in the term of you know lyrical things. In the Hebrew poetry, there usually is not any kind, there isn't rhymes and such. There's normally just the juxtaposition of ideas. We notice that in the Proverbs particularly, if you read through that, that there's uh, usually two things. He'll say the same thing sort of two different ways. And they're always sometimes a very provocative juxtaposition of concepts, which is really what they normally mean in Hebrew poetry. However, all through Jeremiah is one example. All through the Bible, frankly, the Holy Spirit indulges in these things. But in Jeremiah particularly, there's all kinds of sonal, sound-like words. And there's plays, play upon words all the way through the book of Jeremiah. His, his gift for turning a phrase sonically. Is, is something we obviously lose in the English translation. And uh, much of this is just incidental, so I won't bore you with it. But from time to time, I'll make mention of this just, if nothing else, to that we remind ourselves that we are reading a translation. And incidentally, some of the passages in Jeremiah are quite doubtful as to exactly how they should be translated. Fortunately, they're not monumental things, so I won't bore you with that generally. But just as a, a footnote, uh, many of the passages, there are, there are subtle issues because there's a use of words or there's a Hebrew idiom that uh, the scholars uh, tend to debate. It's a rather mild debate because the issues uh, are really quite um, incidental, really of interest only to a linguist. But I mention that. Uh, uh, Beth HaKarim happens to be, Habeth means the house, right? It's the house of the vineyard. House of the vineyard, which has a nice sort of New Testament ring to us, so I thought I'd share that with you. Oh, there's a valley. Another thing I note here to myself. Between Jerusalem and the actual land that becomes the land of Benjamin is a valley. It's the Valley of Hinnom, the Valley of Hinnom. As we get later and later chapters, we're going to talk a lot about the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom becomes, well, I'll get ahead of the story, but it has some very unusual destinies which give rise to an idiom among the rabbis. The, the Valley of Hinnom gives rise to a word called Gehenna, which is used by none other than the Lord in the, in the, um, in the um, Sermon on the Mountain and elsewhere. So uh, when you hear the term Gehenna, which is not Hades, you, in, in the English we have, uh, we speak of hell as a biblical translation. Unfortunately, it's ambiguous. The Hebrew is Sheol, the Greek is Hades, and neither of those are what you and I mean, typically, when we use the word hell, if we do. What we really generally mean is Gehenna. And hell, uh, Hades and Gehenna are opposites. Hades is temporary, Gehenna is permanent. Hades is probably in the center of the earth, and Gehenna is in the outer darkness. And so they're in many ways, at least rhetorically, if not yeah, physically, are antithetical to each other. But that's getting into This all emerges out of, out of the Valley of Hinnom, and we're going to speak a little more tonight about the Valley of Hinnom because there's some very bizarre practices that go on in, in the Valley of Hinnom that Jeremiah is going to rather articulately deal with, but we're getting ahead of the story. But even here in chapter 6, it's sort of setting rhetorically the stage because the between Benjamin and Jerusalem, there is this valley, the Valley of Hinnom, uh, that we'll get to shortly. Okay, that's all by verse 1. We're getting kind of a... So far. Verse 2. 
Oh, one other thing about verse 1. It says, for evil approaches, the whole thing is it's warning that they're about to be attacked, and they're going to be attacked out of the north. Later on, we're going to hear the tribe of Dan mentioned. He's not really focusing on the tribe of Dan. He's just pointing out Dan was the northernmost tribe as the Alec after the conquest of Canaan under the, under the uh, conquest of Joshua and so on. They, the land got divided up, and Dan got the northernmost edge. And so the, the area called Dan has several connotations, not the least of which is the northern part of the land of Israel. And their enemies traditionally entered from the north because of the, the impassable desert that was uh, due east. So even though their enemies might not be indigenous in the north, they always attacked them from the north, or, if you will, from the south, from the Egypt, Egyptian side. But what Jeremiah is going to hammer away here is that they are, not only are they going to have an attack from the north, but this attack is going to be successful. Not only is it going to be successful, it's going to be the instrument of God in the form of judgment. The instrument of God uh, in terms of judgment. Now, as we go through Jeremiah, I'm going to try to do three things, sort of. Not, in, not organized, just sort of in passing. First of all, I'll try as we go to give you a little bit of background, not hopefully not too tediously, of the historical context that Jeremiah sat in, because you need, fortunately, we know a lot about it, and it's also very important in your general understanding of the Bible. So there's a very real, literal, there's a lot of what he has to say as a very literal, direct consequence to the nation of Israel at that time and subsequent. So we're to the students of prophecy, particularly that which is subsequent. Second element of Jeremiah is a spiritual issue, and that's really the central theme of Jeremiah. What was really wrong? What did they do? What can we learn? What can you and I learn from it? You and I are brought here tonight face-to-face -face with Jeremiah by the hand of God. As I often understand in the, among some rabbis, they point out that coincidence is not a kosher word. There are no accidents in God's kingdom. So you're here tonight in the sound of my voice because God has a purpose, and that purpose is probably not for you to get a new insight into the history of Israel. And I suspect it may not necessarily be because of some prophetic insight of what's going to happen 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now or something. You're probably here because God has an interest in you learning, you and I both learning, that which Jeremiah has to say from the, uh, from the Spirit of God that would impact your life and mine tonight, tomorrow, and a week from Tuesday. So that's the second level. There's a third level that's a growing suspicion in my own heart that one reason God has led us into Jeremiah is I have a suspicion the more I get um, an insight into the relationship of Jeremiah with his country, his people, and their predicament, I'm beginning to think there may be another message here for us. One of the things we're going to see that Jeremiah never lets go of the moral issue and the indictment of the people by God, and the fact that in their case, judgment is inevitable. But in spite of that, Jeremiah, you've got to call him a patriot. His passion, his concern, his weeping is for the people because he sees it coming. And even though he, he sees them not repent, he cares. He cares for them individually. He cares for them collectively with, he, with such emotion that he is called the weeping prophet. You know, uh, some time ago, many some time ago, Billy Graham is quoted as having made a crack that if God doesn't judge America, you'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's a cute crack, and it carries a very important meaning. 
My suspicion is that there's also a parallel, perhaps even a more poignant parallel, between the United States and Israel at this time, because both nations had spiritual roots and a mission ordained of God. Israel did, and that's going to come out in our lessons again and again. And what most of us should not forget, that um, uh, our roots of this country, its discovery, and its in, in initial mandate and franchise was clearly given of God and acknowledged by the population in its various forms and in its various ways to be a one nation under God. But we really live, you and I, in what Francis Schaeffer calls the post-Christian era, and it's certainly true in the United States. I understand there's a movement afoot to remove one nation under God from the Pledge of Allegiance, which, uh, you know, it's amazing how progress moves. Um, as we go, and I will not try to make you know, hammer this too hard, because we are, after all, pilgrims, and our real citizenship is in heaven, on the one hand. On the other hand, I learned from Jeremiah and in the sense that um, he was a patriot. And I don't think it's inappropriate for you and I to care about this country and to pray for it, but also to recognize that in our case, we have the benefit that doom is not certain. It was for Israel. It's not necessarily for us other than the recognition. We're going to see in Jeremiah his continual contrast. Here they were, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was in idolatry, failed to repent, was taken into slavery. And Jeremiah continually makes the point that they should learn from their brothers. who They have more light than, the, than, than Israel did, and yet Israel was taken and was, you know, in oblivion. And so they, they had a greater responsibility. As I hear Jeremiah talk that way, I get very uncomfortable. Because you and I have the benefit not only of Israel, but of Judah also. And, and, and so forth. I would, I would suggest that our light is greater. Now, I'm not going to get into Old Testament doctrine and all that in terms of, yes, we're under grace. Hey, God's, ju God's judgment still falls, and he judges nations the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the United States is in great peril today. And we'll talk more about that from time to time. But anyone that doesn't understand that is really blind. It's, the United States is in great peril, peril financially. Our trade deficits are enormous. For the first time in our history, we're a debtor nation. Our nation is in great difficulty competitively because there's probably not a technology. There's very few technologies where we maintain leadership. We can go. We could go into that all night, and that's not the subject. Our nation is in great peril militarily. We face some very serious threats, most of which the general public, for lots of good reasons, is not informed of. But most important and fundamental to all of this, we're in great peril spiritually. And that's where we can learn from Jeremiah and what he's... So when he talks to Israel, I'm going to suggest to you, as if you're keeping notes or something, to think of it in three terms. Historical, literal Israel, spiritually applied to all of us, but then nationally, maybe this applies to us. So I'll leave that with the, as a suggestion, not a hard issue, and we'll move on. Interesting, I happen to... As after, the, after that little dis, the digression, then my eyes fall on the evil appeareth out of the north and great destruction. How interesting. Verse 2. I have likened the daughter of Zion to a comely and delicate woman. The shepherds with their flocks shall come unto her. They shall pitch their tents against her round about. They shall feed every one in his place. 
Prepare war against her, arise, and let us go up at noon. Woe unto us, for the day goeth away, for the shadows of the evening are stretched out. Arise, and let us go by night, and let us destroy her palaces. In other words, this is putting rhetorically the words in, in the mouths of her enemies. Okay, he's using that rhetorically. Verse 6, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Hew down trees, and cast a siege mound against Jerusalem. This is the city to be visited. She is holy um, oppression in the midst of her. He's describing this as if it's happening, and it isn't long after this that that literally is what happens. The Jerusalem is under siege by a general of the Babylonian army by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And before the siege is over, not only does Jerusalem fall, but his father dies, he's now king of Babylon. He comes to this just from his success at uh, uh, Battle of Karshemesh, where he defeated Egypt and became the primary power in the region, lays siege to Jerusalem, and starts the first of three sieges, which span almost 20 years, that execute those things that Jeremiah is here prophesying. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Verse 7, As a fountain casteth out her water, so she casteth out her wickedness. Violence, isn't that graphic? She's so wicked, she spews out wickedness the way a fountain spews out water. You know, it's interesting uh, that the style of Jeremiah is no way as eloquent and lofty as Isaiah, a different style. But boy, is he earthy and graphic. He will paint images through here that are, in fact, uncomfortable. They're so vivid. But anyway, going on, she casteth out wickedness. Her violence and spoil are heard in her before her, me continually, our grief and wounds. Be instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from thee, lest I make thee desolate, a land not inhabited. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall thoroughly glean the remnant of Israel as a vine. Turn back thine hand like a grape gatherer into the baskets. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised, that they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord unto them a reproach, they have no delight in it. That's a bizarre metaphor. Their ears are not circumcised. Now, if you apply that literally, it's sort of bizarre. But obviously what he's talking about, the concept of circumcision here, is the concept of being spiritually committed. And their ears are uncircumcised. That is, they cannot hear with a spiritually tuned ear. Obviously, that can apply in, in other dimensions of our life. But moving on. Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am weary with the holding in. I will pour it out upon the children abroad and upon the assembly of the young men together. For even the husband with a wife shall be taken, the aged with him that is full of days. Their houses shall be turned unto others and with their fields and their wives together. For I will stretch out my hand upon the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord." Can you imagine the impact of a prophet of God speaking by the word of the Lord, saying that to the people? You know, what impact that should have? Scary, frightening. The reaction, of course, is one of just uh, upset. Um, not in this one, but in chapter 7 through 10, we're going to have what's called the temple discourses, speeches that he made that probably caused him not only opposition and hatred, but hatred so bitter it lasted all his life, even to the point of martyrdom. And so, uh, we're, we're, so he, he, his message was not well-received, was not popular. And the irony of it is, here is perhaps the most inflamed patriot of that day treated as a 
a traitor, treated for treason, that he would speak that their enemy, you know, presumably on behalf of their enemies, that was misunderstood. Verse 13. For the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, every one is given to covetousness, and from and from the prophet, even unto the priest, every one dealeth falsely. This is his generalization of the society at that time. And from the least to the greatest, they're all given into covetousness, and from the prophet, even of the priest, every one dealeth falsely. You can decide yourself whether that describes society today or not. We have highly engineered covetousness by our friends at Madison Avenue and elsewhere. Verse 14, They have healed unto the hurt of the daughter of my people, slightly saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore they shall fall among them that fall, and at the time that I visit them they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way, and walk in it, and ye shall find rest for your souls. And they said, We will not walk in it. Also I have set watchmen over you, saying, Hearken to the sound of the trumpet. And they said, We will not hearken. Therefore hear ye nations, and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth, behold, I will bring evil upon this people, even the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not hearkened unto my words, nor to my law, but rejected it. All the way through here, you're going to see emphasized again and again the concept of obedience. This is going to get its most painful contrast in the next chapter because they have they hide behind the rituals in lieu of obedience and misconstrue the Mosaic law. And Jeremiah calls them on that, and in that there's some good lessons for all of us. God would have obedience first, and then rituals or sacrifice or whatever after that as a, you know, as a, as a celebration. But obedience comes first. And that's what, again and again, yes, for obedience, um, they would not hearken to his law and so forth. Well, to what purpose cometh there to me incense from Sheba and the sweet from the far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifice sweet unto me. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will lay stumbling blocks before this people, and the fathers and the sons together shall fall upon them. The neighbor and his field shall perish. It's interesting the, what the ultimate stumbling block becomes. He's speaking here, obviously, in a very practical, direct, immediate horizon. But there's another stumbling block that comes that they, they also reject. And the stone that the builders rejected that becomes a headstone of the corner is also referred to as the stumbling block, if you will. Verse 22, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, a people cometh from the north country, and a great nation shall be raised from the sides of the north. And you know who that is. That's uh, uh, They shall lay hold on bow and spear. They are cruel. They have no mercy. Their voice roareth like the seas. They ride upon horses. They set in array as men for war against thee, O daughter of, um, of Zion. Now, by the way, there's an enormous amount of information here, which is clear if you're really in the, in the scholastic debate, are these the Scythians? And they're not for several reasons. The Scythians didn't invade. Some people maintain they, they did, but they didn't. But also, uh, the, this idea of using horses as cavalry, not drawing chariots. The Egyptians had done that for a long time. 
There's a lot of trade in chariots in Solomon's day and so forth. But the use of horses as cavalry is um, an innovation the Babylonians did do, and others obviously too. Um, the cruelty and so were the Babylonians is uh, pretty spectacular. The way they impaled their enemies on poles and and flayed them alive, and they, they did all kinds of things. They were known to be very aggressive. We see some glimpse on that when we see in Book of Daniel, get to know Nebuchadnezzar, who was an absolute despot, probably more complete than anyone since. And when something didn't agree with him, it was off with his head, and a dispossession of all his, all his relatives. I will tear your limb from him and make your houses a dunghill, he says. You remember that phrase in Daniel all the time? Um, and some of his practices subsequently, you know, the whole business of the, under the meads and so forth, the fiery furnace, burning people alive. These guys played rough. Verse 24, we have heard the report of it. Our hands grow feeble. Anguish hath taken hold of us in pain as of a woman in travail. Interesting phrase. Go not forth into the field, nor walk by the way, for the sword of the enemy and fear are on every side. O daughter of my people, gird thyself with sackcloth, wallow thyself in ashes, make thee mourning as for an only son. Most bitter lamentation for the spoiler shall suddenly come upon us. Now, if you're a mystic, you can find behind these words a message beyond that which Jeremiah had on his heart. He's dealing with his people and the anguish that's coming right on the horizon, i.e. an enemy that God is going to raise to power to be his instrument of judgment on the nation that has been so wantonly um, guilty of idolatry and rejection and so forth. But it's interesting as we go through this from the, you know, the, uh, the uh, hordes from the north in verse 22, the woman in travel in verse 24, and, and, um, and then this uh, mourning for an only son in verse 26. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.